Hello everyone, my name is Ildar. Welcome to another episode of Ask Me About North Korea, a podcast about the most reclusive country in the world. In this podcast, I'm answering the most widespread questions about North Korean politics, society, and culture, in a short and concise manner, based on factual evidence. If you like this podcast, I would be grateful if you could share it, leave a positive review, or subscribe. You'll find the transcript of this episode, as well as some commentary posts, book and film reviews on the podcast's website, www.askmeaboutdprk.wordpress.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Telegram. Finally, as the name of the podcast suggests, please feel free to ask me questions in your comments and reviews. I will do my best to answer them in the next episodes. And now, let's start. When browsing some Western media outlets, you might encounter weird stereotypes about North Korea being a Chinese puppet. Others sometimes argue that these two countries are very close allies, recalling how Mao Zedong called the relationship between the two nations as close as lips and teeth. However, the reality of Sino-North Korean relations today is not as simple. The stereotype of communist camaraderie between Beijing and Pyongyang stems from the history of the 1950s and 1970s. The relationship has become more distant in the 1980s-1990s and then significantly deteriorated under the first years of Kim Jong-un's rule. Despite that, China remains the only country that North Korea keeps relying on both diplomatically and economically. Why is that? Today, we will together explore history and current political intricacies of Sino-North Korean relations. Before we proceed to the main part, I will explain the structure that I will use during the episode, as it will be a bit longer than usual. First, I will briefly summarize the broader historical context of Sino-North Korean relations, then explain how specifically PRC and DPRK became allies during the Cold War, and why the alliance turned out to be more complicated than both sides thought it would be. In the last section, I will cover the current national interests of both countries and how some of those interests clash with each other. Historically, Korea has been a part of the Sinocentric world order for hundreds and even thousands of years. The Korean language, traditions and culture have all experienced significant Chinese influences over the years. For example, until the 15th century, Koreans used only Chinese characters as their writing system, even though their language is obviously completely different. Despite that, Korean has borrowed quite a number of words from Chinese. According to certain estimates, around 60% of the Korean words have Chinese origins. Considering these close cultural and social ties, it is understandable why both nations remain close politically despite occasional spats. Korean kings of the old would always seek the approval of the Chinese emperor before officially ascending to the throne. This relationship has radically changed in the late 19th and then in the early 20th century, as the Korean peninsula thrown into a big geopolitical game between Japan, Russia, later Soviet Union, and the United States. China became sidelined in all matters Korean. At the beginning of the century, the Korean peninsula was occupied by Japan, 
who defeated China in a series of military conflicts and claimed Korea as its sphere of influence and then, later on, colony. Eventually, Korea was liberated by the United States and the Soviet Union only to be divided into two separate states during the Cold War period. As Kim Il-sung's communist government established itself in the north with the Soviet help, it also chose to build up very close relations with Beijing, where the Communist Party took over in 1949. There were some personal leadership sentiments at play too. The first leader of North Korea had very close ties with the Communist Party of China, CPC. The CPC was where he had started his political career and guerrilla activities back in the 1930s. As I have mentioned in episode 21, Kim Il-sung was even a CPC member until 1946, even though North Koreans do not really like to talk about it. What cemented the foundations of the contemporary Sino-North Korean relations was the Korean War, in which China, along the Soviet Union, participated on the North Korean side. China's direct military assistance at the later stages of the war was what saved the DPRK from being completely destroyed by the joint UN forces commanded by the United States. In total, Beijing sent almost 3 million soldiers to assist Pyongyang in that war and literally flooded the opposing side with corpses. Immediately after the war, having joined forces with the Soviet Union and other Eastern European communist nations, China provided economic and humanitarian assistance to the DPRK. However, even in the period of the Communist Brotherhood, these relations haven't always been smooth. In 1956, a political crisis happened in North Korea, making Kim Il-sung question both China and the Soviet Union. Specifically, the Soviets negotiated an agreement with the Chinese and attempted to orchestrate a palace coup against Kim Il-sung. Both countries saw that Kim Il-sung's personality cult is spinning out of control and wanted to remove him out of office after receiving many complaints from the North Korean ambassadors in their respective countries. With this Chinese and Soviet support, some of the party factions that were unhappy with Kim Il-sung attempted to force him out of office during a 1956 August party meeting, but failed to get a majority needed against Kim Il-sung. You can imagine why he hadn't been particularly thrilled about the whole affair. Domestic developments both in China and the Soviet Union at that time were major turn-offs for North Korea as well. On the one hand, Kim Il-sung was naturally unhappy with Khrushchev's anti-Stalinist critiques since Kim Il-sung was nothing but a small Stalin himself. Siding with the Soviet Union, therefore, could be politically dangerous for Kim's status at home. China, with all the help and assistance that it provided to the DPRK, seemed like a more natural geopolitical choice. Furthermore, at that point in time, China offered very significant military assistance to Kim Il-sung through the so-called Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation and Mutual Assistance. That very short document, which you can also find on the podcast website, contains the following mutual defense clause, I quote, The contracting parties undertake jointly to adopt all measures to prevent aggression against either of the contracting parties by any state. In the event of one of the contracting parties being subjected to the armed attack by any state or several states jointly, and thus being involved in a state of war, the other contracting party shall immediately render military and other assistance by all means at its disposal. Unquote. In other words, if North Korea is attacked by someone, then China is legally obliged to come to its assistance and vice versa. It is a real military alliance and the only such treaty that China has with a different country. 
Signing that agreement in 1961 was a crucial historic moment for both Pyongyang and Beijing. The consequences of that agreement are immense up until this day, as it regularly causes heated debates among Chinese political analysts. Many of them are not sure that the treaty serves China's national interests anymore. For example, prominent Chinese political scientists like Yang Xuetong and Zhu Feng keep repeating that North Korea can no longer be seen as an ally to China since it often acts against Beijing's national interests, which we will discuss in greater detail a bit later. What is important, the document allowed Beijing to maintain its influence and leverage over Pyongyang ever since the 1960s. This influence was exactly the reason why Kim Il-sung chose to diversify his diplomatic ties, fearing that it made the country too dependent on China. He never liked putting all the eggs in one basket in the first place. Furthermore, as the Cultural Revolution began to unravel in China, Kim Il-sung became increasingly uncomfortable and was alienated by the political chaos orchestrated by Mao Zedong. That is why, starting from the early 1960s and to the 1980s, Kim Il-sung began to play on geopolitical contradictions between China and the Soviet Union, while also attempting to stick to the non-aligned movement. That helped North Korea to extract as much assistance and as many political gains as possible from both countries. Naturally, this evasiveness annoyed both Beijing and Moscow, who began to see the DPRK as a very unreliable partner. By the 1980s, China, who opted out for conducting major socio-economic transformations under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, even chose to establish diplomatic relations with the capitalist South Korea. China realized that political allegiance to the communist ideology didn't matter as much when you could earn a lot of money and ensure prosperity of your population through development and trade. And in terms of economic ties, dealing with the booming and prosperous South Korea was way more attractive than constantly subsidizing the politically unreliable regime in Pyongyang. That was when Beijing also significantly decreased the amount of economic assistance provided to Pyongyang. Ever since then, China has been calling on the North and encouraging them to follow suit in conducting similar economic reforms. After all, if Pyongyang became more economically sustainable, Beijing wouldn't have to waste too much money to keep it afloat. Hence, the Chinese government on multiple occasions invited Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung's son and successor, to visit Chinese cities and companies booming under capitalist transformation. During the tours, the Chinese showcased the wonders of market economy and explained that North Korea could get as rich had it followed through on the path of reforms. North Korea, on their side, would diligently listen but never actually do anything. No, it wasn't that Kim Jong-il was a stubborn and aware incompetent leader who didn't want to get prosperous or who was adamantly against the Western lifestyle and influences. There was something else to it was that the North Korean elites feared that with open access to market goods and services, their population will get exposed to information about the outside world as well, which could destabilize the regime. Yet after a lot of pushing, in the disastrous famine of the 1990s, North Korea did embark on half-hearted economic reforms, allowing grassroots marketization to take over the country's economic system. Still, the DPRK under Kim Jong-il never fully listened to China's economic advice, and many experts called this marketization mere flirtation with capitalism. Under Kim Jong-un, however, 
North Korea continued with the market reforms, but the government also did its best to diversify its sources of political and economic support by demonstratively shunning Chinese influences in the first years of his rule. I would argue that Sino-North Korean relations reached their lowest point after 2013. That was when Chang Sung-tek, Kim Jong-un's uncle, who was responsible for maintaining contacts with Beijing, was executed for selling out his country to China, among other things. Kim Jong-un also demonstratively refused to go to China with any official or state visit for the first five years of his rule, while kept testing missiles and nuclear bombs throughout that period. All that naturally made China extremely unhappy. Here I would need to explain the current geopolitical interests of China on the Korean Peninsula. They rest on three main pillars. Firstly, and most importantly, the Chinese are largely interested in preserving the current status quo and preventing Korean reunification. Korean reunification would mean that the American troops, which are currently stationed in South Korea, would then move right to the Chinese border. This would consequently undermine China's military security. Furthermore, a united nationalist Korea could have territorial disputes with China for historical reasons, which Beijing also does not want. Thus, North Korea as of today serves as a cheap enough buffer zone and ensuring its existence is essential for China. Secondly, the Chinese are sincerely interested in ensuring stability of the Korean Peninsula, which feeds into the first objective. A serious conflict on the peninsula would result in major economic and trade losses for China, as well as a massive refugee crisis right on the Chinese borders, if a war was ever to break out between Pyongyang and Seoul. Thirdly, the Chinese are very unhappy with the North Korean nuclear status, and they would really like the North Koreans to disarm themselves. Beijing rightfully believes that Washington can use North Korea as a pretext to grow its military power in the Northeast Asian region. As of now, Beijing is ready to temporarily accept North Korea's de facto nuclear status as long as Pyongyang does not conduct any nuclear or intercontinental ballistic missile tests. At the same time, denuclearizing and stabilizing North Korea economically through a Chinese or Vietnamese reform model would be an ideal scenario for Beijing. On the other hand, we have national interests of the DPRK, which all stem from one essential concern, regime survival. However, this broad interest implies several smaller sub-interests. Firstly, North Korea needs to keep its nuclear program as an ultimate insurance against external invasions, be it from South Korea or the United States. This means that the strategy of regime change cannot be used against it without major security consequences, and believe me, no one wants a nuclear war in the heart of Northeast Asia. Secondly, the DPRK's leadership needs to modernize and improve North Korea's economy, or at least stay economically afloat, considering the circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic. Otherwise, it might lead to a full-scale economic catastrophe and popular uprising against the regime. Trading with China, which constitutes 90% of North Korea's external trade, is an essential element in that strategy. Finally, the regime needs to prevent any major conflicts on the Korean peninsula that could lead to a full-scale war. North Korean elites perfectly understand that they will lose such war very, very quickly. At the same time, North Korea wants to always maintain a certain degree of tensions so as to be able to extract diplomatic benefits through negotiations. Thus, as we see, there are at least three major clashes of interest here. First, 
China would like to disarm North Korea and close down its nuclear program, but this idea goes against the key national interests of Pyongyang of using nuclear weapons as an insurance against external threats. Secondly, China would like North Korea to proceed with broader economic reforms and liberalization while Pyongyang fears that it might undermine the regime's integrity. Thirdly, China might be the only major power that can punish North Korea economically, but if they overdo it, the regime in Pyongyang might collapse, which is not what Beijing wants. Alleviating these clashes is possible, but completely solving them will require a lot of political will, which is lacking, especially in Pyongyang. On top of those contradictions, you have the lack of trust on both sides. The current top leadership in Pyongyang does not trust China and suspects that Beijing would have gotten rid of them had it been given a chance. Probably, they are not so wrong here. Still, they also understand the level of their economic dependence on Beijing, which they also do not like. China, on the other hand, cannot help but get frustrated by the great number of missile and nuclear tests that are often conducted arbitrarily and without consultations with Beijing. These tests, the Chinese analysts argue, often provide an excuse for Washington to strengthen its military presence in the East Asian region, which poses a security challenge for China. Furthermore, subsidizing trade with Pyongyang and providing economic and humanitarian assistance also costs China money, even though far less than before. Nevertheless, while providing tangible goods, Beijing feels that it does not get anything back from Pyongyang, with the exception of occasional votes in the UN General Assembly. At the same time, both sides still understand that they need each other. China needs North Korea as a buffer zone, while North Korea needs China as a major economic partner that helps Pyongyang in avoiding the disastrous impacts of the UN economic sanctions. Paying for Pyongyang to stay afloat does not cost too much for China, perhaps several hundred million dollars, peanuts for Beijing's immense state budgets. Furthermore, North Korea also still relies on China militarily in the framework of the security treaty, which I discussed before. What is quite interesting is that the treaty will remain in effect until exactly this year, when it has to be renewed. It is quite unlikely that Beijing will not choose to do so, but there is growing opposition to the treaty in the Chinese academic community. The critics argue that North Korea is barely doing anything in line with the Chinese national interests, and they do have a point. The hassle of the treaty is weirdly reflective of the current state of the relationship between Pyongyang and Beijing. China often gets annoyed by North Korea's actions but acknowledges the need to support Pyongyang, while North Korea merely hopes to use this relationship in its attempts to prop up the Kim regime. Finally, I would like to stress one thing. North Korea perfectly understands that it cannot cross certain red lines and anger its only major partner too much, which is why even Kim Jong-un eventually had to succumb to rationality and consult with Beijing on foreign policy matters. In 2018-2019, after a long break of six years, Kim Jong-un paid several visits to China in an attempt to improve relations. That was especially important for Kim after his government was slapped with the strictest set of UN sanctions in 2017, which China chose to implement for a while as a political concession to Washington. Eventually, Xi Jinping also paid a return visit to Pyongyang, indicating reciprocity and demonstrating that Beijing is still ready to offer some patronage. It might very well be that there is even more room for improvements in the future, 
Specifically, because the COVID-19 pandemic hit North Korea very hard in economic terms, Pyongyang will need China's help more than ever to recover from the fallout of the coronavirus recession. However, I doubt that the aforementioned conflicts of interest and systemic trust issues can be solved in the short run. What is your opinion on the question of Sina North Korean relations? Do you think that they will improve or deteriorate in the upcoming years? How will their significance change for the geopolitics of Northeast Asia? Leave your opinion in the comments below or in the review section. If you like this episode, please leave a positive review on the podcast platform like Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Also feel free to provide your feedback on this episode's quality and ask any questions about North Korea that you might have. Thank you for listening, stay healthy, and stay tuned.